powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. All right. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before I want to jump into this episode, though, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, Michelle Danner. What an absolute pleasure to speak with her, and I am looking forward to hopefully getting to check out her film, Miranda's Victim, that she directed. Uh, I will let Duval Nation know when it's available one way or the other. So thank you, Michelle, and best of luck to you. All right, so welcome to episode 138, and in a first for the Derek Duvall Show, we have a very unique guest lined up for you today. We have with us Bobby Luisi, former Capo regime for the Patriarchal Crime Family. Bobby will share stories about his life in organized crime, his eventual arrest and imprisonment, and how he denounced the mob after finding Christ and then became a pastor and man of God. He has also authored several books and runs a very successful YouTube podcast, The Bobby Luisi Show. This is honestly one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done on this show, and I absolutely cannot wait for you to hear it. So, Duval Nation, please join me in welcoming, calling in from Boston, Massachusetts, former patriarchal crime family capo turned minister and author, Mr. Bobby Luisi. Hello, Bobby, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. I am really glad you're here. I've been looking forward to this interview now for two weeks. Uh, let's start out. How was the weather out by you today? Well, it wasn't that bad out today. Maybe in the parties. Nice for New England, you know. I start my interviews off the same way, and then it's how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world up to this point? I Well, I haven't navigated it too well. Two years ago, uh, it was April 13th. I went and got the first shot. I got up on the 14th. It's like I hit a brick wall. The shot gave me COVID. Then I had long-term COVID, and that went away. And then a month ago, I got COVID again. So I wasn't too good at ducking that. So you made a full recovery? You're feeling better now? Oh, yeah. I'm doing better. Okay. Every journey has a beginning. Where were you born, and what was it like growing up there? I was born in Boston, in the North End, in the Italian section. The North End was, uh, say, gangster capital. The Angelo family ran out of there, a few other couples. You know, the North End was a little lately. So a lot of that came out of uh, East Boston, the North End, where I grew up, young age. We moved to East Boston from the North End. My mother got divorced, and I went to public school there in East Boston. And then I went back to the North End when I was 16. Now, from what I've read and from what I understand, your father was a man of many trades with the patriarch of crime family. What are your memories of your father, and did he tell you what he did for a living while you were growing up? Well, I know just from talking on the street. And, I mean, the man looked like a gangster. He dressed like a gangster. There wasn't uh, really too much to hide, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, my father was a smart guy on the street. 
very creative. I'm going to put it that way. Fear nothing. You know, unfortunately, that you heard about his demise. So Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. From what I've read, you originally had no interest in following your father's footsteps, and you were heavily invested in construction. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. That's true. I got my first builder's license at 20 years old from the city, and I got a state license at 23. And in 1984, I moved out to the vineyard. I had bought some buildings in uh, East Boston and the North End and sold them. And I went down to the vineyard and started specking houses down there. But by 1989, the market crashed down there and uh, lost everything. So I came back, and the next thing I knew to do was go on the street. So 1990, I was back on the street. So how exactly does that work? One day you're a civilian, and the next day you want to get into working with the mob. Well, at that time, the Petriaca family was in a little disarray with the new boss and people getting arrested. Uh, there weren't that many guys out on the street that I grew up with, my father's friends, you know. And uh, I just went back out on the street and just started doing my thing. And because I was a Luisi, it was very easy for me. And I was well-known in the North Denny's Boston and the neighborhoods. My family was well-known. So it was kind of easy for me to get in. It wasn't hard for me. From what I've read, you had a few earning operations from bookmaking, loan sharking, drugs, and a few clubs. Uh, do you have to ask permission to start these things so as not to become a rival or to interfere with someone else's business? No, what happened, um, a very close friend of mine, actually still a close friend of mine until today, I don't want to say his name on the radio, but uh, was a capo in the Petriaca family. He proposed me into the family. And that was right away. So right off the bat, between being a Luisi, being proposed in the family, nobody bothered me. Nobody came near me. I was with the, what, what should I say, the right team mm -hmm. on the street. And uh, and then as I was doing that, I was building my own crew. What kind of money are we talking about in these kind of ventures? Are we talking vast sums or is it just a little bit here, a little bit there? Well, in the beginning, it was a little bit here, a little bit there. And then when my drug business grew, you know, I made my first few million. Uh, I was putting money on the street. I was loan shocking. We always had a bookmaking office. I had card clubs, we called them. We used to go in every Wednesday night or whatever night of the week. A lot of money uh, went through my club at that time. Mm -hmm. My father had after hours. He was always into the after hours. So we were really uh, racking it up in the mm -hmm. 90s. Became a millionaire right away. I had almost a million on the street and loan shock money. It was 650000 350 in drugs hmm. when I got pinched. So I was doing pretty well for myself. You know, some weeks it was, it was good. It's good. So are there kickbacks to keep the family or anyone else happy? No, not at all. I had a partner in the beginning. I'm not going to say his name either. And uh, we ended up splitting up and no, gave nobody nothing. So with my follow-up question, with these kind of operations, do the local police turn a blind eye, or is it like at a federal level that you get the most scrutiny? Well, I think what happens and what I've seen, especially, you know, there was a war up here in the 90s, you know, as part of that. Um, I think the feds, DEA said hands off these guys to the locals. Never had a problem with a local cop. My card club never got raided and. uh yeah, until the day I got arrested. And the locals, they, they watched us, they reported back, but they didn't touch us. They didn't mm -hmm. come near us. In Boston, there was also the Winter Hill Gang. What was the Patriarch's family's position on them? 
there was no went to hell gang when I when I came up in the nineties. Hmm. You know, Whitey Bulger was around, but he was in South Boston. I actually went up to that area in Somerville in Ball Square, and I put a crew together over there. There was a crew there existing, but I took them over, and I was doing a lot of business out of Somerville. These were some of the old younger guys that were with them with the hell guys, ended up hooking up with me. What was the driving force that led you to leave Boston and go to Philadelphia? Well, there was another cop in the family I was again along with. Uh, one night it got pretty serious. And I knew at that point that I was never going to get made in the family. You know, it only takes one person in the family, you know, to squawk, denounce you, whatever. And then you're out. You'll never get made. Or until that person's gone. So I said, what the hell? I, you know. I had friends in New York, uh, Rhode Island, and they wanted me to hook up with the Gambino family. So a friend of mine from uh, the Lower East Side had a meeting with uh, Pete Gotti, and Pete told him, uh, tell Luisi we can't do nothing for him now because there's already a family up there. You know, there were commission rules. And then I was pointed a very close friend of mine who was uh, in prison with Ralph Natale, who ended up becoming the front man for Jory Molino in the Philadelphia family. And I went down there and I hooked up with them. Joey and I had like a similar story. You know, I was never as, how could I say it, as popular or whatever as Joey is. And even till today, God bless him, you know. But uh, we had a similar story. And up in Boston, basically, I was the last man standing. I had the strongest crew. They came up. They proposed me. They seen what was going on. I was down there. I really liked those guys down there were good guys. And I got made down there. Mm. Then I was made a capo six months later, and uh, I made seven guys in Boston in my crew. For my listeners who don't know, what exactly is the definition of a made guy? All right. uh, Let me say it like this. All right. So around these people, they start grooming you. They start liking you. They might ask you to do a few things. At one point, they might go to their captain. or If a captain likes you, might go to the boss and say, Hey, I want to propose Bobby for membership. So then we go through a little period of being a proposed guy. And uh, when they do have a meeting, they take us in one at a time. There's a little words going back and forth. They prick your finger and you're a made guy. But it's a very formal ceremony. And without that ceremony, you're not a made guy. When someone proposes you to be a made guy, how many people have to sign off on that? Really only one. You know, just one copo in the family. Like, you know, after I was a cop, when they made my guys, they were coming to me with people. And I have to make the decision if I want to take it to my boss. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as the guy has a good reputation, not a rat, we don't hear anything bad about him. You know, trace him back just a little, you know, because mm-hmm. we're Americana now. We can't, right. you know, go back to Sicily, <laughs> you know, in Naples. But anyway, um, you know, we like to know a little of the history. And most of them are just neighborhood guys that we all grew up with. Uh, that's how that worked out. But it is a process. You could be a street guy all your life. That doesn't mean you're going to be a May guy. That's the process of being a May guy. Did you ever have aspirations to run an entire family? Yes, I did. Uh, the deal I made with Joey, um, he made me. Philly made my crew. I was going to stay with Joey a few years and break off. And just be the Luisi family up here, up in Boston. But uh, things happened on the street. Things happened to me personally. And I really didn't want to do that anymore. I was content where we were. 
actually the last year before I got pinched, I was like, I was on a toddling fence at that point mm. between the life. And, you know, I found Christ at that point, uh, 15 months before I went away. So it was hard for me to stay on the street at that time. One of the questions that a lot of people I spoke with when you agreed to come on the show wanted to know is you hear these stories sometimes portrayed in movies and such of all the rival families coming together for a big meeting. How does that work and how do they keep from killing each other? Well, you know, it's really not about that. It's not being, it's not the mob isn't all about murder. The mob's about making money. Mm. You know, even the wars that we went through up here, Columbus and New York, whatever, they get settled. Let me put it to you this way. We bombed Japan. Worst thing that ever happened in this world, right? Now, look, there are allies and we support them and they support us after what we did to them. You understand? Anything could be mended, anything. And that's how these guys get together. Even if they resent each other, they'll still sit. We're supposed to be men of honor. We belong to something. The mafia are sometimes romanticized and glorified in films and television. But from what I have read, the real life that's not portrayed, is it a life of constantly looking over your shoulder 24-7? Yeah, 24-7. You don't know when the law's coming on an enemy, who's going to be your next enemy, who you're going to want to kill next. You don't know. You know, someone else might want that brass ring. So you got to be careful in the street. Mm. Even at peacetime, you have to be careful. You know, I've owned a lot of businesses, was a developer owned restaurants, all that. I put a lot of time into those businesses, but it was nothing compared to what I had to do in the street. You know, go, even me going to bed at night, put my head on the pillow. I'm worrying about my whole crew, the guys on the street, what I sent them to do. You know, it's really a stressful life. It's not like you see in the movies. It's like that for the knock around guys. They come down, they you know, get your coffee, do this. They're in the bar room or they're in the club. They go home at night. They don't have the kids that you have. You know, once you're a May guy, once you're in the family, everything changes. So the next phase of the interview is kind of a turning point for you in your life. Can you describe the events that led up to your arrest, indictment, conviction, and prison sentence? All right. Well, you know, I tell the story of what happened why, about my conversion. I come home one night. was a little drunk. I never had cocaine in the house. Never had it around my family, my wife. But it so happened that it was for a May guy. One of my guys dropped it off because they missed each other and had it in the cabinet. I knew it was there. It was locked up. Come home, two, three in the morning, drunk, room spinning. And I went and I grabbed a little. This went off for the course of the night. Then I saw something. Something came to me. I'm not going to say the whole thing, but I had a demonic experience for eight hours. Eight hours I fought that. I actually had a call. My mother had a church in East Boston at the time. She came with the pastor, my brother, my sister, all Christians. I took the host that night and I turned, uh, I tried to turn my life over to Jesus Christ. But believe me, I was still on the street doing drug deals. There were still a few people that we were looking to get rid of. Let me put it that way. You know, now I'm walking a total offense. I, I, you can't knock on the door and say, hey, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to go get a job. You can't do that. They'll stick you in a box if you do that. You know, especially the depths that I, I was in myself. So, and then I got arrested in 99 on cocaine charges. I did not want to deal. Um, I, I wasn't forced to, but I was constantly act, asked uh, to deal with this wrong previty, who I felt was no good from the beginning. I never liked them. 
actually a few times, I, I would say kind of like picked on him a little, you know, because Joey made him a cop when the family had no crew, you know, and I used to break his balls over that constantly. And I ended up uh, for Joey, uh, dealing with him. I was sitting with an FBI agent. They came and picked me up. It was June 28, 1999. And uh, they came in the house. There were gentlemen, the feds. They cuffed me, took me down to the car. And when I was walking down, I felt like a yoke broke, broke off my shoulders, like a million pounds came off my shoulders. I started smiling, and in the car, they couldn't understand it. It was like, all right, God, you took me out of the life. Now I'm going in there, and I'm facing uh, only 10 years, 10 to 12 years, which I would have done with no problem. But I found out when I was in there, my friend, that uh, the guys I murdered were, were telling on me. Mm. So now I had to take a different stance. And believe me, these guys were worse than me. Out of my crew, I was the least of all of them in the early 90s in the war, you know. And I'll admit that. Um, but I, I have to tell you, when that happened, it broke my heart. To me, the life was over. And I said, I'm not going to spend the rest of it. Well, because, uh, let me say this. My lawyer comes down with Marty Bedro. He just left the AUSA's office, okay, in Boston. He knew they had me cold. He came down, he told us, Bobby, your friends are ratting on you. You got no way to get out. You're looking at a life sentence right now on one murder. He says, I can't even help you with that. And he wanted me to go talk. I wouldn't do it. He still was trying to get me to 10 to 12, but he says, you're never going to get out. They're going to come and reindict you. Me, I'm here out in the street. I built a family. I built my family up. We're making money. And I'm, these guys are forcing me to talk. So that's what I ended up doing. Uh, praise God, uh, I got prophets on the murders, but I never told on anybody. I never got on the stand, never did that. So uh, that was a good thing, you know. But that's what happened. That's what uh, what was good is I ended up doing uh, 13 years, nine months out. I went to trial twice and I lost. And uh, I ended up with 13. I did 13 years, nine months. And I studied the whole time. I got a degree in theology. I wrote that first book, uh, Last Generation. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, now I changed the name to uh, right. God's Brain Reveal, you know. And I, I taught in there for years. I also taught uh, GED courses. And because of my background in construction, uh, they asked me to teach a course to the guys that I put together curriculum. They got me the tools, everything I needed for these guys that were going out the door in construction to give them a little shot to get a job. Half of them couldn't even read a tape measure, but I, I was teaching them. Between GED and that, I was teaching the guys. I was very proud of that. And I realized then I love being a teacher. And that's what I'm doing today. So, I was going to bring it up later, but since you mentioned it, these guys who turned on you and were ratting you out for a murder charge, were they up for serious charges too and they were just trying to save their own ass? Absolutely, 100%. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's why they did it. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Bobby Luisi. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long, deep breaths. Yep, you know, <laughs> Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder... Can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated. 
and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podcastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBAL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. Hey, it's Presley Tennant, and you're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find my brand new EP, 600 Miles, on all streaming platforms right now. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy, it is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hello, this is Erica, host and guide of the YouTube vlog Mon Jardin au Coin. I invite you to join me as we explore the many joys of gardening, such as sowing seeds, raising plants, and the reward of harvesting. If gardening is something you're interested in, or you just want to follow my adventures and receive tips to help any novice break into starting their own garden, you can find Monjard on Oquan on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. 
I look forward to having you hang out with me in my little garden on the corner. Hey, this is Patrick Baker, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. Check out my new single, available on all major streaming platforms, and visit my site at patrickbakermusic.com. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 138 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with former patriarch of crime family capo turned minister and author, Mr. Bobby Luisi. I remember hearing something once that was in the vein of wise guys know they have to do some time at one point or another. Is that a fair and honest statement? Absolutely. Like I said, at 10 to 12, I was just looking for a deal. Go do my time, come home. And my plan at that time was to move my family out of Boston. Not that there was any problems. Right. But I just didn't want to go back there. You know, you're a boss over there. Now you're coming home. You're not a boss anymore. There'll be new guys on the street. Even though my old crew is still out there, I just didn't want the life anymore. Yeah. My plans were to go. When you come out of prison, I've seen in other interviews you've done that you went into witness protection. Was it an easy transition from prison back to not be even being a boss, but just a civilian? Not at all. Nothing. Today, I still have some problems with that. But I think doing that 14 years, I learned to submit to authority. You know, Christ was in my heart. I was once a man of power and position. I understand what it's to be when you're going to job, a supervisor, a manager, whatever which I always had those positions when I got out right away. But um, yeah, I didn't have a problem having a boss. I didn't have a problem getting up every morning. I did it in prison. I taught in prison. I worked in the kitchen. I always kept myself busy and I did my studies. You know, I, I tried to make good time out of it and I did. What are your favorite memories from your time in witness protection in Tennessee? I met a beautiful woman down there and uh, we, we got married. Uh, it didn't really quite work out. You know, I'm Italian from Boston. Yeah. And she's uh, German, Irish, and Scottish from Tennessee. <laughs> she was a pretty girl. She had the accent and everything, but it just didn't work out. I wanted to come home. Did she know that you were in witness protection? Unfortunately, yeah. She came to my apartment. I, I got a little OCD anyway. I'm still like mm. that today. Everything was perfect, put in the place. There was no pitches, no nothing like that. She said, this time I'm up here because I feel like I'm in a hotel room. That's how nice I had it, you know. And uh, But it took me a while to tell her. But other people, they guessed that right away. I just used to laugh and walk away, you know. How long did it take you to write and publish The Last Generation, which is now retitled as God's Plan Revealed? Well, you know, when I first got pinched, I went into, uh, it was not Hampton, 
they moved me around in Boston and I was down in Springfield in that area. And I was in a prison that I was able to get a laptop. You could get a laptop, a TV, or a typewriter. Of course, I get the laptop. I start writing right away, writing down what God's showing me, the visions that I'm having, doing the whole thing. I say that the last generation, I wrote that in prison. I rewrote it maybe uh, several times because God kept revealing new things to me, new unctions, and kept showing me things, you know, and I kept adding, adding to the book because the book, you know, goes from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelations, and it, break is, it breaks it down into a historical timeline. Because I want people to be like mini theologians. When they read that book, they're going to have a lot of knowledge. You know, I had a gentleman on the show back in mid-2022 named Mike DiVicino, who had alleged ties to the mob, and he was sentenced to three life sentences and did exactly what you did, you know, created programs for getting kids GEDs and trying to keep kids from turning prison into a revolving door system. And a year or so ago, they let him out, even though the judge originally told him he would never see the light of day again. And now he's a man out of time, if that makes sense, you know, doesn't know what a computer is, the internet is, and his story is mirroring yours in a few ways. And that's incredible in itself. So. Well, you know something, man, you know, this is something I learned in wisdom and over the years, we do things in ignorance. We see a lifestyle that looks glamorous and something we want to be part of. And well, we know those guys are murderers. We know they sell drugs. We, we understand that, you know, but it's okay because they're doing it. This is something that we do. You fall into the life when you realize what the life is really about and the people that you're around. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah. The people that you're around. Everybody, you know what it's called now? It's self-preservation. How can I make the best deal? You can't trust nobody today. You right. can't do it. I'll tell you, when those guys did that to me, it broke my heart. And, but what am I going to be? The pincushion all the time because I was a boss. You're going to keep telling on me and you're going to go walk on the street. It's not going to happen. Right. I understand why guys do it, you know, and I understand why guys don't do it to protect whatever they have. But me, I was done with the life before I got arrested. Hmm. I really was. This is a question that I find fascinating about your story, and that's upon your release from prison, you denounce the mob. Now, you're not a rat or an informer. So how exactly does one, especially a made man, walk away safely from the mob? Well, like I said, they put me, they came to me. I was ready to get out. My bid was almost over. I had a few months left. And they called the prison. They found me over there. And because uh, the Boston office knew what, where I was, you know. Connecticut guys call up FBI. They knew that a guy that was with me, Bobby Garanti, they felt had something to do with the uh, art robbery. That big heist in 1990. Yeah, the, art, the, the art one, yeah. 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 They wanted to know what I knew about it. Now, Bobby Garanti had died. I loved that guy, but he died. So I wasn't ready. So they came and I told them what I knew. So now they want to help me. Not even two weeks later, the FBI comes from Boston because they know I talked with them. And they said, we got so-and-so. And uh, we want to know where you're going to be because we're going to subpoena you to the trial. But if you, you know, if you're willing to voluntarily talk, we'll help you put you in the program. I said, I never committed a crime with the guy. There's nothing that I could even tell you about him, except for hearsay, which doesn't mean anything. But I was looking to kill that guy. And I told him that. I told him the truth. I read the mic time, I, whatever. They says, all right, 
We just want you to get up on the stand and say who you were at that time and give us the structure of the mob because you were the boss at that time. They didn't even care about the Patriarchs at that point. It was so disorganized. So that's what I did. And uh, they let me go into the program. And that was a great thing. I don't feel that I went up on the stand and ratted on that guy because I was already getting subpoenaed anyway. And there was no way in the world I was going to plead the fifth. Not for this kid. I'm going to go back in now. No, I was going to talk anyway if I was in the program or not, because I had nothing to talk about. So you are now a pastor. What do you tell your congregation about your past life, and has it ever not gone over well with people? It's gone over pretty well with everybody, and I see, I even noticed that in prison, because if a guy like me could turn to Christ, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, I was a regular prisoner. In prison, I fought, I did whatever I had to do. We all have to do that with men in there, but I still love God. You know, and I still uh, had these classes going in there. And they respected that. You know, every crew and gang out there fastened themselves after the Italian, Italians. So the Italian mob is like the figure for everybody in the structure. So they had a lot of respect for me anyway, especially when being a capo. A capo means boss in Italian, right? right? So now... I'm up in Boston. I'm a boss. My real boss, Joey Molino, is 300 miles away. So I was my own boss and my own man up there. You know, so I had a little different than other guys, though, uh, in the life right now. You know, yeah. a couple in New York wouldn't have been like the couple I was in Boston, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes. So now I really believe it's easier for a street guy to come to me where I've been there and done it all. You know? It felt more secure with me knowing that I've done that, I've had that past, and I've turned my life around. Geez, how did you do that? So a lot of people welcome me. I have no worries about that. Okay, Bobby. So when I told my listeners you were going to be coming on the show, I asked them to submit some questions, and I chose the most intelligent of them. And the first one comes from a listener in Florida, and she asks, what do movies get right and get wrong about life and organized crime? They glamorize it too much. I'm going to take Donnie Brasco, for instance. Okay. A lot of those events didn't happen. I was in prison with Frankie Lino. He was actually there in the cellar when they killed the three captains. You remember that scene? Mm-hmm. It was nothing like that, you know? And they had Sonny Black down there. They had them cutting up bodies. They had this. It wasn't like that. A lot of it was true, you know, but it, 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 very loose, very mm-hmm. loose. When you really know the truth about certain things, you know, the Godfather was a beautiful movie. I'll tell you, the closest one I really believe to the street is the Bronx Hill, which has the, I still, that's my favorite movie. Mm. You know why? That's a neighborhood couple right there in that movie. That's what the life is. So shows like The Sopranos and such, not really as accurate? Oh, yeah, no, they do. No, they did. They got a lot of it close. I, I love that show. You know, I really did. Actually, I did something with, uh, uh, Tony Sharik, I know he passed away now. Paulie yeah. Walnuts. I did a comedy special uh, uh, thing with him. I met him. I got pictures with him. Nice guy, you know. And uh, James Grandolfino is a very good friend with my family. Very good mm-hmm. friends. Mm-hmm. So they had a nice cast. They were good people. They portrayed it, I think, pretty good. I think they pre- did pretty good on that show. Mm-hmm. But as far as a movie, Bronx Tale. Okay, a Bronx Tale. 
All right, Bobby, I'm going to be 100% honest with you and say I've never seen it, but I will add it to the list. I promise. Yeah, that's a good movie. I got this next question asked a few times, and it is, can you verify the phrase, I hear you paint houses, and what it truly means? Uh, I don't know if they said that in New York. I can't say it. No, we didn't do that in Boston. Okay. We didn't talk like that. And we're all in different places with different slangs and different, you know what I mean? Like, in other words, if we were going to do something or just going out, I call my guys and take your American Express card with you. Don't leave home without it. You know right. what I'm talking about. You understand? Yeah. So we had all our little codes and what we did. Right. You know, but I never painted houses uh, the way he talked about that. I never heard that expression before. <laughs> <laughs> Another great fan question here from a listener in Oklahoma, and that's if you had the chance to speak to your younger self, what would you say to him? Stay in school, get an education. If I ever knew, my mother sent me to a college prep. I lasted one year because uh, not that I was just a fresh kid, but 16 years old, I started working for a carpenter that was making 500 a week, got an apartment, and uh, I didn't want to go to school anymore. But if I knew what I knew today, I would have definitely stayed in school. I would have went to college because I love to teach. That's a passion now of mine. The last fan question comes from a listener in England, and he writes, in your humble opinion, what is your opinion on organized crime to, as it is today? And do you find that they still have as much influence as they did when you were a member? No. Uh, the 90s up here was wild, like the Wild West. It was in New York to in Philadelphia. That could never happen again. First of all, there's not the men on the street with the nerve to do what we did. I don't want to say, you know, any bad words, but the class of wise guys that are out there today, no. You know, the old timers that came home, God bless them. They were real gangsters, but they're older now, 60s, 70s, 80s. And these young kids, they didn't grow up like me. I grew up with old timers, you know, and they grew up with the, the younger guys around. So they really don't have a chance. In New York, I really don't know what's happening there, but the mob is just going to be diminished. Anytime you turn around, you know, like in Boston, it's real weak right now. They have their things going. They're still here, but it's never going to be like I had it. Never. Mm -hmm. I have heard that Charlestown is the bank robbery capital of the world. Yes, it is. Yep. Is it still that way? Um, no, I don't think so. That was that was another thing in the nineties or two thousands. I'm not saying there's no bank robbers in Charlestown because there is, <laughs> uh -huh. but that's another thing. Um, I had them after me do the uh, bank robbery task force because some of those Irish guys were with me. You know, mm -hmm. nice guys, gentlemen. I worked a lot with the Irish, the good people. Mm -hmm. Well, I married an Irish girl too, so. Well, there you go. I want to ask you about your book, From Capo to Christian, The Life of Bobby Luisi. What inspired you to write your own biography? I felt this more, to me, like a testimony. You know, I start when I'm a kid. You know, I started working with the wise guys when I was 11, 12 years old, uh, doing the vendor machines for the Angelo family and Ronnie Rome. My father was a gangster. I was always around those people. And it kind of like led me into the life, you know. 13 years old, my father used to uh, run strip joints up the combat zone. I used to go up there every week to get money from him. Always around, but always around these wise guys here and there, you know. And I seen how they respected me because of my father. So I wanted to share all that. I wanted to share that, you know, I really wanted to be uh, a carpenter, a, a developer, a businessman. But uh, like I said, turn of events, 1990, I did the second thing that I knew best, you know. 
And uh, when I came home, I had no money. My credit was short in 1990. I had two kids and I had to make money right away. And that made me go back on the street. Can you tell my listeners about your podcast? All right. What I do every Sunday, 6.30, I come on with a live show. I pre-tape my teaching. This is the Christian time now. I pre-tape my teaching. I put that up. And then after the teaching is done, I come on live with my people. So every Sunday, I put a show up, a teaching, a preaching. No, I'm not a preacher. I'm more of a teacher. And then the other one, I'm mob interviews. Mikey Franchese, all of those guys, you know, friends of mine. I have probably 100 uh, mob shows up there that I've done interviews. And, and I've been on Vlad. I've been on Netflix. I've been on uh, Comedy Central. Right. So I, I got around pretty good, you know. Do you ever talk to any of your old crew? And by that, I mean the ones who didn't turn on you. Not really. I stay away. You did say you have mobsters on your shows. I didn't know if it meant any of them. Well, there was a, there was a few, you know, that talk to me now, but still, I just rather, uh, yeah, go to work every day, to be honest with you. <laughs> Makes sense to me. All right. So there is one question I do want to ask, and it's kind of a, one of the last ones before we start this final phase of this interview. And that is, you know, Bobby, do you miss the life? And if so, what do you miss about it? I miss the glamour part of the life every day. The suits, the cars, uh, the way we were treated. I pull up to a place, five people want to come and park my car. Doors were wide open, never had to wait in line. That part of the movie is pretty true on all these movies. Where they know you, they treated me like that. Not every place in Boston, obviously. Especially in my neighborhood, the doors were open. That's the part of the life that I miss, that everybody knows you, you know, the popularity. You're kind of like a uh, celebrity. Mm. You know, I'm even more of a celebrity today. I'm not going to say where I work, but uh, people come in and from the show, and at least once or twice a week, they're coming up, shaking my hand. We love your show, and it's really nice, you know. I really yeah. like it. Right now, the most important thing in life to me is Jesus Christ and teaching the word, to be honest with you. I still will do more um, gangster interviews because I was a gangster. That's my past life. I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of it. I did what I did. I did my time. And, you know, a lot of those guys are my friends. And there will still be a lot of interviews. Mm-hmm. But right now, I'm really concentrating on the Christian. Would you say the gangster interviews you do, that they are sort of, you know, therapeutical for you, that kind of perhaps puts things you all did together in perspective? Absolutely, 100%. All right. So what's next for Bobby? Are you focusing on the show still, or do you have another book in you? No, no. There's another book. Uh, Emily Sweeney is a top reporter for the Boston Globe uh, with organized crime. And uh, my my manager hooked us up together, and we already got a book deal. Uh, we're hoping the book's going to be out November or October of this year. Mm-hmm. It'll be the Bobby Luisi story, Four to the Floor, I think the name of it is. So she's working on that right now as we're speaking. So she took my notes. We talk. And a few other people she's talking to, and she's putting the story. No one ever really told the story of the war in Boston in the 90s, you know? And this is what uh, the book's going to be about. Is this the type of book they might shop around for a movie or a show? Yeah, they even want to do a cop of the Christian, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. My manager's on me with that, too. <laughs> That's self-published. I wrote it, right. you know, and um, it's really a good book. It tells a good story. Everybody enjoyed it. You know, I saw stars on Amazon with both books, four and a half, five stars. What's the reception to from Capo to Christian been like? I'll tell you, the response from the people, it's been incredible. 
It's incredible. Yeah. You know, people see what I went through. They really love the book. What I was doing is I, on Amazon, it's 20 something dollars. On Etsy, the Bobby Luisi show, I was selling autographed uh, copies and mailing it myself, you know, yeah. in the book yeah, for $25. You know, so it was very popular. Uh, but most people go to Amazon to get the book, mm. you know. Hmm. As we enter the final phase of our journey, I always like to ask one fun question. Bobby, like, what do you like to do? What do you like to do to unwind, relax? What do I do to relax? Uh, you know, that's that's funny. My life years ago, it was out all the time. You know, always with the friends. Today, I just kick back, Bo, and watch TV. You know, I'm going to be 62 years old. I'm tired of nightclubs, barrooms. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. You know, and... uh I say for fun is just being around my kids and my oh. girlfriend, I would say. Yeah, that's my fun. Are your kids fully grown or do you have young ones? I uh, had three children. My oldest passed away in 2018. Ah, I'm sorry. I hear that. My condolences. Yeah. And I have my son, Robbie. He's uh, 30, going to be 38 or 38. And the baby's 26. What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your show and then follow your adventures online? Uh, it's very easy. BobbyLuisi.com is my website. Uh, the Bobby Luisi podcast on uh, YouTube. Mm -hmm. They could go right up there and watch the shows. The books, like I said, are on Amazon and Etsy. So there's a lot of ways they got me. Very popular. On, hey, you, you Google me, a million things are going to come up. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Bobby, I am my interviews with my favorite question. And I feel like with your life, you might be able to give a very interesting answer. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? To be honest with you, and I don't want to sound corny, my friend, but I seldom not to see Christ. That's what I would do. Look at what the Earth is right now. Look at what's going on in every country. Look what's going on in our country. We're losing God, my friend. It's a terrible thing. And uh, this is what I say. Seek him and find him. Time shot, my friend. The books are And God's Plan Revealed and From Capo to Christian, The Life of Bobby Luisi, available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, Etsy, or on Bobby's website. Bobby, thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on the show. This has been very eye-opening and very enjoyable. And like I said at the beginning of the show, I have been looking forward to meeting you for about two straight weeks now. So thank you ever so much. For having me, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. God All right. Bless. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 138. I want to thank Bobby for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to speak with me. Like I said, I was looking forward to speaking with him, and he did not disappoint. I hope everyone checks out his show on YouTube. And Bobby, sir, thanks so much for coming on the show. It meant a lot to me. Okay, tune in again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We prefer good ones, though, of course. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there, and we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, 
We have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added, and I'm always adding new shirts, so make sure you keep checking. So with that in mind, go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, go to the banner, let us have merch, click that, and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic. And once again, we want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, do what Bobby says. Watch a Bronx tale. <laughs> I know I ain't going to, that's for sure. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.